Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Season 1, Episode 4. I'm your host, G.M. Danielson. Simply Scary has a program where we will devote episodes to the works of specific up-and-coming horror authors. We know that the next Poe, Mary Shelley, or Stephen King is just waiting to be given that chance to break out of obscurity. With great pride, we devote this episode to three stories by horror author James Dermond. We know from his recent collection that he's the perfect guide through doorways to the unseen. Since it's Halloween, we want to get right into the frightening tales to make your nerves twitch. Two young women and longtime friends are taking a trip to their traditional vacation spot. Unbeknownst to them, there's a malignant force that haunts their secluded home away from home. It brings with it paralyzing visions and a malicious force. Simply scary newcomer Eden performs the first of three stories from James Derman's Doorways to the unseen, we proudly bring you the drowned man. 
You made out with Joshua Barger? That is so gross. Please tell me you didn't do that. April sat in the front passenger seat, scrutinizing her friend Jessica as the two girls drove down a roadway devoid of other vehicles through densely forested areas on either side of them. Jessica kept her eyes on the road as she steered, smiling slyly, arching her chin upward, and said, He's really cute once you get to know him. Not at all like people have said about him. But it was only one time anyway. I wouldn't say that it counted. Jessica continued to smile, this time with a wide grin breaking out over her plush, full-lipped mouth, while April looked away from her and out the car window, watching the bright midday sunshine over the tops of the soaring coniferous pine trees as they sped past. They were now close to Jessica's parents' summer home, which the two would have all to themselves for several weeks. Jessica's black Labrador retriever, Marcus, sat up in the back seat from his nap and began to force his snout into April's face, nuzzling and poking her as he panted. April pushed him away. You should keep Marcus outside as long as it's not raining. He hasn't kept his nose off me since we started the drive this morning. My only reprieve was his nap time, and that must have just ended. Marcus! April pushed Marcus away from her face again. Marcus began to whine and pant more intensely, as he knew they were nearing the trio's destination. He then turned around and resumed his earlier prone position across the back seat. Jessica held a paper-thin smile on her face but didn't respond to April. She remarked to herself that April had always been oversensitive about nearly everything. School, boys, her parents, food, things that were gross. It was truly amazing that the girl had made it to 18 intact. Jessica glanced over, observing April adjusting her glasses and then shifting around in the front passenger seat, unbuckling and then rebuckling her seatbelt. Jessica and April's friendship had begun in middle school and then continued on into their high school years. Even though they were an unlikely pair, the girls had remained close friends, one maturing and the other staying largely the same. Jessica had competed on the varsity swim team at their high school and continued to swim in college, developing a lithe athletic build due to all those years of continual exertion. April was the wallflower of the duo and was working toward a degree in English literature at their university, hoping to be a teacher upon graduation. Jessica possessed an almost classic beauty with long, light brown hair that extended over her broad shoulders and luminous blue eyes. April appeared remarkably similar in this respect, having hair and eye colors that almost matched Jessica's, but in contrast, she was frozen in a kind of permanent physical adolescence. She was very thin and her body was nearly curveless, having grown in height during high school but otherwise appearing mostly undeveloped. Jessica saw the unmarked entrance to the gravel road that intersected the two-lane highway and began to slow their vehicle to a crawl. Her parents' summer home was at the end of a very long, winding path that was just wide enough for a single mid-sized truck and would accommodate no other traffic. After driving deliberately down the flinty road and then climbing the small hill near its low apex, Jessica stopped their car to unlock the waist-high, rusted iron gates blocking would-be intruders from parking on the property. Jessica then pulled the maroon compact car to a second stop by the tool shed in the unenclosed yard and shut off the engine. As soon as Jessica opened one of the car's back doors, Marcus bolted out and started racing in circles around the two girls, the moment for which he had been waiting all day. Bounding around the lawn in the back end in the front of the lakefront house, Marcus then sat down facing it near the red cedar wooden dock that extended about 10 feet from the sandy shore into the pristine lake. He became very quiet, his pent-up energy now somewhat spent. Marcus tilted his head and just stared at the vacant house, making no sound, his sudden stillness mirroring that of the lake's waters. 
We've spent every summer at Lake Iltillo for five years in a row, and it's always tranquil. Jessica stood next to the parked car and looked out over the circular lake's sun-spattered surface with its clear, cerulean waters as the early afternoon sunlight reflected on it. There are neighbors on the other side of the lake, but there are some thick woods between us and their cottages. We have so much privacy here, and I hate to ever have to leave it. April, who was carrying two of her bags from the car trunk, asked, If the neighbors want to visit, how do they stop by? Or don't they ever come to see you and your family? Jessica reached into the tightly packed trunk of the car and grabbed a plastic cooler by the handles. Eh, they have to take a rowboat from the other side and park it at our dock, but neighbors don't really pay as many social calls, at least not as many as they did in past summers. Those cottages are rental units, so their summer residents are different almost every time. I can't tell you who might be living over there this tourist season. Jessica continued to lug her cooler as she spoke to April. I've only ever stayed here with my parents and brother, and we've never brought company. This is my first time flying solo. We used to rent one of the tiny cabins on the other side of the lake until we bought this house. Jessica walked toward the house's cement side porch with the bulky cooler and placed it on the ground near the porch's metal railings. The one-story ranch-style house was of a simple design and construction, with white aluminum siding and a red shingled roof, but it was well-maintained and could easily fit into any suburban neighborhood. I used to sleep in what will be your room this time around, with Marcus at the foot of the bed. He would wake me up with his whining and growling in the dead of night. I'd have to throw him outside just to get some rest. Marcus never seemed to like this place. He's more of a water dog than a guard dog. If there's an intruder, we'll probably have to fend for ourselves. Jessica sighed a bit at the thought of keeping Marcus in her room at night if they were hit with a bout of rainfall and he couldn't be allowed to roam free. She scanned the somewhat overgrown front lawn leading to the dock for Marcus, before stepping inside through the house's side door that abutted the porch. The dog had not budged at all and had made no attempt to enter with them, persisting at his spot by the dock, his sight locked on the house. April sat down next to Jessica at the table after they had finished filling the refrigerator from the cooler and stocking the pantry shelves from a few cardboard boxes that had been taped shut for the trip. Jessica had been talking at length while they stowed away their supplies and continued with the story that she had begun while unpacking. So Richard and I went to Times Square for New Year's Eve. We saw a live show at Radio City Music Hall, and then we wanted to grab something to eat on the way back to the hotel. There was a burger mecca just a block from where we were staying, so we walked in and got in line to order dinner. Ahead of us was a customer arguing with the burger mecca employees who were behind the counter. He was waving his arms and shouting, demanding a refund for his meal, but not getting anywhere with his request. With no warning at all, no one could have seen this coming. As the Burger Mecca workers hadn't even raised their voices to the customers during all of this, two of the female crew members jumped over the counter and just started wailing on him. I mean, they were punching and kicking, and he was just taking it. Jessica hunched her shoulders and leaned in toward April from her chair with a gleeful expression on her face. The man broke free from their assault, and they ran outside after him, pushed him to the ground, and there he was getting his ass kicked in the snow. Jessica smirked while remembering the beating. We decided to order room service instead. That's a terrible story. You have a mean streak, Jess. Jessica smiled broadly. Mm, I know, but you were always the good one, if not a little neurotic. A favorite of the Holy Sisters at St. Juder's. I never had the disposition for pious observation. Jessica got up from her chair and said, Time for me to hit the road. I'll join you next week after I go whitewater rafting with my brother and his friends. 
Then we can spend the rest of the month here relaxing before our internship starts. You can catch up on some reading during your time alone, like you wanted to. April tried to seem pleasant. <sighs> Anna Karenina is tempting. I might be able to finish that in a week. April watched out the side door window as Jessica drove off with Marcus in the back seat, leaving her by herself in an unfamiliar house. It was late afternoon, so April decided there was enough daylight remaining to take a boat ride around the lake and see the other side with the rental cabins. The latter part of the day had become windy, and April let the strong breeze wash over her while standing at the edge of the dock. She noticed a metal rowboat on cinder blocks placed next to a nearby tree, its inverted hull pointing up. The rowboat had been painted aquamarine and looked spacious enough for two or three occupants. April was able to find the oars in the shed behind the house and then returned to the shore, pushing the rowboat out into the water and stepping into the boat as it drifted past the dock. She rowed fastidiously and made good time across the center of the lake and then coasted along the tree line near the opposite shore to rest from her endeavor. The boat glided by the rental cottages, six unadorned units all within several yards of each other. April saw a stout middle-aged man moving among the cottages. He was wearing a canvas teal fishing hat and carrying ten buckets that he then placed at the shore near the red cedar wooden dock shared by the cabins. The man had been watching April's boat ensconce as he laid down his burden. Hello there. Are you staying at the Snyder place across the way? The place has been empty since last summer. April sat up in her bench seat and responded. Yes, but we'll only be here for about a month. Do you know Jessica Snyder? The man shielded his eyes with a hand as he conversed with April. Eh, is that the daughter? I know that she stays with her parents each summer, but I've only talked to them, not her. Did know the previous owner, though. April's boat came very close to the rental cabin dock and then halted its drift forward in the shallow water by the shore. The afternoon winds had died down and no longer disturbed the lake. The man continued speaking. Name's Bill Patterson, miss. You are? April. Jessica and I are friends from school. April rested her hands across the boat's oar handles as the two spoke. The last owner was a big-time lawyer from somewhere out west, the man said. Came up here for his vacations. I've been renting the same cabin here every year during perch season since there have been houses on the lake. Mr. Patterson took off his fishing hat and put one hand on his waist, holding the hat above his knee with the other hand. Watch them build that house on the other side, the one that belongs to the Snyders now. He gestured with the hat in his free hand at the direction of the solitary dwelling across the waters. The orange glow of the day's last rays before sunset began to shimmer over the aquatic plant-filled shoal between Mr. Patterson and April, signaling the need to end their conversation and row back to the lake house. But April had become curious about the owner before Jessica's family, so she continued. Why did the first owner sell the house? Did he find somewhere else to take a break from his law practice, or was it for some other reason? Just wondering. No, ma'am. Mr. Tinsley's passed away. He drowned in this very lake. April was taken aback and now felt very uncomfortable returning to the unoccupied house by herself after hearing of the preceding owner's fate. Why hadn't Jessica mentioned this to her before she agreed to spend part of the summer at the house? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. How did it happen? Wasn't anyone around to help him if he was swimming in the lake? I warned Charles about taking a dip at night. He had a weak heart, but he may have done it on purpose, too. No one knows for sure. Happened five years ago this summer. Mr. Patterson was noticeably upset, but went on with his local anecdote. Don't know why he would have gone swimming at night, but the sheriff's deputies found his body on the lake floor, buried under layers of sediment. 
Lake Oteo is thick with freshwater plants, especially in the middle where it's deepest. They had to drag the bottom and haul him up with chains around his hands and feet. I saw the whole thing happen and what the corpse looked like after it was recovered. The Snyders had just bought the place from Mr. Tinsley, and he was getting ready to move out permanently the next day. They were staying at a hotel in town when it happened. April looked away from Mr. Patterson and over the horizon, noting how little daylight was left. Even if the idea of being alone in a house with a checkered past didn't appeal to her, she didn't want to be out on the lake at night either. Jessica never mentioned any of this to me. She only said that her family had stayed at the house every summer, starting five years ago. They did. They moved in for a while after the death was declared an accident. Then they came back the next summer as if nothing had happened. Mr. Patterson replaced his fishing cap on his head and gave April a weary look. Good to meet you, Mr. Patterson, but I have to get back to the house. It's been a long day. Good to meet you, too. I'll be out fishing all day tomorrow. Mr. Patterson extended his open right palm at April as a farewell and then stepped inside his unassuming abode for the evening. April turned down the sheets on her bed and fluffed the pillows, flipping off the switch of the lamp on the nightstand as she lay at her side on the mattress. A dog-eared bookstore copy of Anna Karenina was close at hand next to the lamp, the evening's reading that had helped April unwind and ease her nerves after the day's disquieting revelation. The dim radiance from the plastic nightlight plugged into a power outlet near the bed contrasted sharply with the total blackness that poured in from her bedroom window. A waning moon was barely visible over the peaks of the pine trees, and the kind of absolute lightless night only found in the deep countryside permeated the room, obscuring everything beyond the bedposts. April drifted into a fitful sleep, but after some time was able to find her first dream. She was out in the middle of the lake at night, sitting in the rowboat from her visit to Mr. Patterson. There was nothing discernible around her except the proximate murky lake waters and the perimeter of the boat, with all else being a yawning void. April looked down at her sandals and saw that brackish water had begun seeping into the boat from a hole in its floor. The boat was beginning to sink steadily. While watching as the water filled the boat's interior, April stood and then dove into the lake headfirst in proper swim form. April hit the water with a splash and then attempted to paddle forward into the nothingness, but her partially submerged body was held in place by an unseen force. It was as if she was being pulled down into the lake by invisible attendants, grasping at her clothes and holding her legs tightly as she was dragged downward into the tangled mass of underwater flora. April struggled and attempted to tread water, but the lake was able to engulf her, her head abruptly disappearing beneath its surface. She had inhaled and taken an emergency breath before she went under, but April's supply of oxygen was soon exhausted. She was hyperventilating and convulsing as her lungs filled with lake water, her nostrils burning from the unwanted intrusion. April's vision grew dim as she ceased fighting, and she involuntarily choked up on the fouled water, but she was still able to make out a figure that was under the lake's waters with her, floating above her close to the surface. April lurched forward in bed and gasped for air. She leaned on her knees and consciously breathed until her breath had become somewhat even and normal again. Even so, she was inundated with a feeling of overwhelming sadness and loss that seemed to derive from nowhere. The nightmare had been so vivid, she had never dreamed of death by drowning before tonight. A man stood at the foot of her bed and stared at April, bloated and saturated with lake water. 
He had clearly been underwater for some time, as he had aquatic plant debris in his dripping, wet, matted hair, and his saucer-like eyes bulged horrifically. The man stood silently and said nothing, not making any motion at all, but continued to gaze at April as she sat covered by her blanket. Not sure if what she was seeing was more of the drowning nightmare, April crept out from her under her blanket and onto the bedroom floor, reaching into the nightstand drawer for the crucifix that had been left by Jessica's mother. She knelt at the side of the bed and said the first Our Father, periodically glancing at the unmoving phantom. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. April continued praying a second Our Father, followed by a third, and then a fourth. The fourth Our Father provoked a reaction in the drowned man as he took one step back from the foot of the bed and also became less defined, melding into the bedroom's outer darkness. April watched him as she recited the next prayer, pressing the top of the crucifix to her chin. The specter retreated from her bed yet again as she prayed, and she could now see that the man's distended hands folded in front of him at his waist and were chained together at the wrists. April lowered her head and continued to pray, observing that each subsequent prayer would cause the apparition to step farther back and become increasingly faint. The Our Fathers continued until April could no longer see the dreadful figure in her bedroom. This was definitely no longer a nightmare, as April was sure that she was wide awake and could sense her heart thumping at breakneck speed as she uttered the words to the final prayer. Barefoot and wearing only the soccer shorts and plain white t-shirt in which she had slept, she stumbled past the foot of the bed and dashed outside through the front door of the house. Breathing hard, April was about to flee down the path to the highway when she heard Jessica's voice call out for help. Someone! I can't make it! I'm going under! She looked out over the lake shrouded in the nighttime sky and could see Jessica in the distance, flailing and attempting to keep her head above water. A slight man of about 40 years old with horn-rimmed glasses suddenly ran up to April's side, oblivious to her presence, even though she was only a few feet away from him. The man called out to Jessica, What are you doing? Swim to the dock and I'll pull you up to shore. I can't. My leg is cramping and I'm sinking. Get the sheriff, please! We don't have time. I'll swim out to you. The man turned around and ran toward the shed. As he moved, April could see that he was almost translucent. He then passed April again, holding a flotation vest. The man removed his sweatshirt and waded into the dark waters of the lake. He swam clumsily toward Jessica, the life vest strung around his neck, but she was far from the shore and his progress was slow. The man paused his strokes to breathe and then asked while he treaded water, Why are you out here? I'm a star swimmer. I thought I would be fine, but I can't move my leg. Hurry! The man resumed his efforts and reached Jessica, passing her the flotation vest. Jessica donned the vest and began to push herself through the water with her arms back to land. The man did not move as she swam away, but instead began to struggle to stay above the shallow waves washing over him. He called out to her, I'm having an attack, Jessica. Come back for me. I can't make it without you. Jessica stopped and floated in place for a moment, facing the man. Without a word, Jessica turned around and continued to swim back to the shore, 
overcome by her fear of drowning in the lake. As Jessica came within reach of the shoreline, the man's head went under the lake's waters once and then resurfaced, gasping for air, and then went under for a final time, sinking out of view entirely. The vision ended as the early morning sun rose over the lake's tree line, bathing April in the light of dawn. She staggered back inside the house and collapsed on the living room couch, losing consciousness instantly. Did anything exciting happen while I was gone? Any of the local boys come looking for me, I hope? April met Jessica at the side door after watching her park her car near the shed as she had done before. Jessica was tanned from her outdoor excursion with her brother and seemed to be in high spirits. <sighs> Jess, let's, let's just go home. We can relax there, catch some movies, go shopping. It'll be fun. April almost wanted to reveal her ordeal to Jessica, but knew that she would be seen as delusional. Who would believe such a thing? Jessica was adamant. No, no way. We are staying put. I haven't had any quiet time since last summer, and I want to be rested for our internship. My parents and your parents are at home, remember? April smiled weakly. She vowed that she would never set foot in the lake house again after this summer. Where's Marcus? April looked behind Jessica for the rambunctious canine and then outside past the open door, but he was nowhere to be seen. I left him with my brother. We'll be fine. Marcus is sort of a pain, remember? The house will be quiet without that dog. I'm going to get back to my novel if you have everything unpacked. Suit yourself. I'm going for a swim. Be back in a few. Jessica walked past April with a carrying case and then minutes later came back out into the living room in one-piece bathing suit. She was headed out of the front door for the sunny waters of the lake, a perfect day for a swim. April looked around the corner into the hall that ran in front of the house's three bedrooms and the single bathroom. Hey, why'd you put your bag in my room? You can have a whole bed to yourself, you know. Jessica stopped at the threshold of the front door and turned around to answer April. I'm going to stay in your room instead which is actually my room anyway. I like the view of the lake better. You only have one bag, so just move it to one of the other bedrooms. Jessica arched one eyebrow as she continued. But what's with the crucifix above my bed? That's my mom's. Are you entering a convent? You just need a date, girly, that's all. April walked towards Jessica and furrowed her brow above her clunky glasses. I don't know, I feel safer with it over the bed. It's really a beautiful hand-carved piece, too. Leave it up, please, Jess. I was worried for a minute that you would swallow all that hocus-pocus. I'll leave it up, I promise. Jessica steps inside the front door several hours later with a towel wrapped around her waist. I'm going to change, and then we can play a board game. I know which one's your favorite, Jessica said, grinning. The Monopoly box is in the linen closet on the top shelf. Jessica and April put the game box away after sundown and decided to go to sleep early. Jessica looked out of the large, front picturesque window from the kitchen at the calm waters, which were barely touched by the faint moonlight. April? Barrow, there's something I didn't tell you about this place. This house that we bought five years ago. April was yawning, but then became expectant, hoping to hear a confession from Jessica. Yes? Is it important? I'm really tired and just want to get to sleep. Jessica sighed and then gave her friend a genuine smile. <sighs> All right, I'll tell you in the morning. Nighty-night, don't let the bed bugs bite. 
April moved her bag with her clothing and toiletries from Jessica's room and closed the door to the bedroom farthest down the hallway as she retired for the night. Jessica sat at the edge of her bed with only the nightstand lamplight illuminating the open drawer in front of her. She stared at the crucifix she was holding in both hands, running a finger over its depiction of the Christ figure. Jessica put the crucifix in the back of the nightstand drawer and closed it, shutting off the lamplight. She decided that she would tell April about Charles Tinsley first thing the next morning. April woke to a still house. She rolled over in bed and peeked at the clock on the nightstand. The digital display said 9.27 a.m. Jessica had not knocked on her bedroom door yet for breakfast, so April went into the kitchen and poured a bowl of cereal and milk. Jess, come and get some breakfast. It'll be lunch soon if you don't get up. Really, Jess? April went down the hallway from the kitchen and knocked on Jessica's bedroom door. No answer. She knocked again. Jess, I'm coming in. I hope you're decent. The shag carpet was drenched and April's bare feet sank into the soaked fibers with her first steps into the bedroom. Jessica's body was sprawled over her mattress, the sightless eyes and slack mouth of her pallid, distorted face gaping up at the bedroom ceiling. Lake water ran in rivulets from her icy corpse over the bed sheets, dripping onto the floor around the bed that was littered with dead lake plants. April gagged from the overpowering fetid smell of the drown that permeated the room and wafted over her. She covered her mouth as she began to reflexively vomit, running from the bedroom tomb to escape its stench and the ghastly sight that lay on the bed before her. As she fled, April was able to glimpse that Jessica's right hand was clutching the nightstand crucifix. supernatural force so decayed and noxious that it makes the air difficult to breathe. What about that unsettling sequence about liquid filling your lungs, making your muscles ache, gasping and burning deep down inside? Oh, I'm sorry. Did that make you feel uncomfortable? Although, considering that he was the drowned man... It seems appropriate that it be difficult to breathe in his presence. Let's see how easy it is for you to breathe by the end of James Derman's next story. Let us meet a young woman named Megan as she attends the funeral of her grandfather Blint. After being strong-armed into living with her grandmother Abigail, she makes odd discoveries, which her curiosity compels her to investigate. In the process, she discovers a strange but deadly curse on her community and the connection her dearly departed grandfather has to it. Evil Idol contestant Ashley Arndt performs the eerie yarn, Grandfather's Cane. Is that St. James or St. John, she thought. Megan continued to focus on the bare stone statue nearest to her, mounted on its pedestal along the church wall, facing the side of her pew. 
The church service had dragged on, and Megan felt herself beginning to nod off. There were both sons of Zebedee and Salome, but I could never tell one from the other, either from the statues or the paintings. A random thought came to her. No, not that Salome. The dim sunlight on the overcast day outside filtered through the stained glass windows of the church, where the burial service was being held. Megan sat in the far back pew behind her family, from which she could see Grandma Blint's black pillbox hat and a hint of its mesh veil peeking above the burnished mahogany pew closest to the altar. The priest stood close to Grandma Blint in the aisle between the rows of pews and had gone through the final recitation in the Book of Common Prayer, asking for a moment of silence to remember Grandpa Blint. The priest asked everyone to rise from their seats, and Megan was snapped out of her internal monologue, with her attention again on her grandfather's funeral proceedings. Megan straightened her skirt with her hands and stood with everyone else. The priest concluded, For as much as it has pleased our Heavenly Father, in his wise providence, to take unto him our beloved brother, Walter Blint, we, therefore, commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God through our Savior, Jesus Christ, who shall change the body of our humiliation and fashion it anew in the likeness of his own body of glory, according to the working of his mighty power, wherein he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. The gathering of friends and family members then replied, Amen, as the priest put down his prayer book on the pulpit and signaled the elderly organist that the funeral service had ended. The breadth of the church's space was filled with the hymn being played, and the attendants began to file out into the center aisle from their seats to leave. Megan left her pew last, and walked through the red ornate double doors of the church, and down the shallow concrete steps, following her mother and father. Where is Grandma? Is she still inside? Megan's mother Claire turned around and searched through the front doors, standing at the edge of the carefully manicured lawn surrounding the church. Claire was a broad-shouldered matronly woman, taking more after Grandpa Blint than her mother. Megan was considerably shorter in height and really didn't resemble her family at all, either in her appearance or in her mannerisms. I'll go check. I don't see Grandma behind us, so she must still be with Grandpa's casket. Megan smirked at Claire and began to walk back into the church to find her grandmother. The church itself was not particularly large, but had a Gothic cathedral style that included the statuary of angels and saints placed prominently among the arches of its interior. Four spires reached up into the cloudy afternoon sky that now showed signs of developing rain. One spire on either side of the facade of the church, and the other two atop its gray shingled roof. Megan saw Grandma Blint seated in the front left pew, her eyes locked onto her deceased husband's enclosed lacquered coffin. The casket was long and custom-made, as Grandpa Walter had been a tall man in life, 
in contrast to Grandma Abigail's petite stature. Megan walked to the pew and sat down next to Grandma. I miss him so much. I can't stop thinking about him. Grandma took more tissue papers from her purse and dabbed her eyes with them. I'm not sure how I can go on without your grandfather. He was truly my whole life after your mother and other children grew up and moved away. Grandma, we all miss Grandpa Blint too. None of us expected this to be so sudden, but Grandpa is at peace now. A prolonged illness would have been much worse. Come on, let's join the family outside. Uncle Harvey is going to take Grandpa's coffin to the cemetery now. The hearse is waiting. Megan offered to help her grandmother up from her seat, but Grandma Abigail stood up by herself and slowly made her way out of the church, putting the tissues back into her purse. The six pallbearers came for the casket, and took possession of their burden, bringing it out of the open exit door past the rows of pews on the right side of the church. St. Bartholomew's was at the intersection of a busy street in the town's downtown historical district. The church shared a few blocks with the small museum, a colonial-era boarding house, and the town hall. The town's main square was not far from the church, and was a gathering place for the students of the sole local college. Megan kept pace with her grandmother to the cars parked adjacent to the street curb, while a group of pedestrians gathered on the street corner opposite the church. Grandma Blint stopped to speak to her daughter, who had been waiting for her mother to emerge from the church. Megan continued to walk toward the street, as her car was parked on the curb furthest from the church and closest to the street crossing. Megan took the car keys out of her skirt pocket and glimpsed the busy street activity. She noticed an old man standing with his head down behind the walkers who were waiting for the signal light to change. He towered over the bunch, so he was visible even from behind them, but his posture was fatigued and his shoulders slumped. The old man's wispy white hair was matted, forming a low crown around his otherwise bald head. As the flashing light turned a solid green and the throng of people moved forward, the old man, who was dressed in dark formal attire, remained standing at the corner, with his face obscured. When the people reached the sidewalk alongside the church, the man's stooped neck shot up, and he gazed directly at Megan. His face showed nothing but complete, utter terror. The man began gesturing and mouthing words that Megan couldn't decipher from her distance. His weathered face contorted itself, as if seized in some apoplectic fit. Megan then realized that the old man was Grandpa Blint, watching his distorted, painful attempts to communicate something, but with nothing produced that was perceptible. A group of cars drove in front of Grandpa Blint after the streetlight finished blinking amber, and he was gone after they passed. Megan stood silently in shock. That couldn't have been real, she thought. My grief must be much worse than I imagined. 
All the stress must be causing me to hallucinate. I couldn't have seen that. Megan pulled her thin-rimmed glasses off of her face and rubbed her eyes, breathing slowly and deliberately. She stood still, tried to regain her composure, and then resumed walking as if in a mild daze. Megan settled into the driver's seat of her car and looked into the rearview mirror, now apprehensive that another vision might come to her. She started the car engine and pulled out of the parking spot onto the side street that was parallel to the church. The funeral wake was being held at Uncle Harvey's house, which was an hour's drive from the church. Of all her adult children, Uncle Harvey lived the closest to Grandma Blint, but his house was still considerably removed from the childhood home that their mother still occupied to this day. Are you alright, Megan? You look like you've seen a ghost, if you don't mind me saying. Megan's father, Sean, met his daughter at the front door to Uncle Harvey's home and let her inside. The living room was full of the family's relatives, holding drinking glasses and talking among themselves. Megan's mother was seated at the kitchen table in the adjoining room with a group of older women, deep in conversation. Megan's father was younger than her mother, with a lithe build and a typically buoyant demeanor. The two had met during their college days and had started a family immediately afterward. Sean was a high school guidance counselor, and Claire was a science teacher at the same school. The three of them had traveled across the country to attend the funeral on very short notice, as Grandpa Blint had not even been hospitalized before he passed away. I just need to sit down. Is there somewhere on the sofa I can rest? Megan moved past Uncle Harvey and sat down next to some of her younger cousins with paper plates of food on their laps. You'd better not spill any of that, Steve. Getting a beet stain out of this rug would be no picnic. Megan was attempting to change the subject and lose her father in the crowd. No, Megan. Come and sit with us in the kitchen. Grandma Blint moved toward her and stopped in front of her seated granddaughter. I want you to tell Aunt Stasia and Aunt Betty about your plans for college this fall. You worked so hard for that scholarship, and I want to let the whole family know what you have accomplished. Grandpa would have been so proud of you. Megan joined everyone in the kitchen and began explaining how she had won a full scholarship to study journalism at her mother's alma mater. I am a legacy, so that might have helped as well. But Mom didn't study photojournalism. Right, Mom? Claire looked around the guests at the table and said, No, I was an organic chemist, but then I became pregnant with you, followed by your brother. I've since been reduced to teaching an unending series of unruly freshmen the mole method, but you were worth it. Aunt Stasia interrupted and said, Claire was always so interested in Mother's Farmer's almanacs and reference manuals on practical botany. All three sisters really loved reading, but your mother spent her four years at the Lyceum Academy with her nose buried in a book. We were quite surprised when your mother met Sean and got married. We didn't even think she liked boys at all. Aunt Stasia winked and then smiled at Claire. 
Claire grinned wryly and continued. Megan is enrolled for her first semester classes, but has yet to find a place to live. I insisted that she have no roommates during the first year of college to prevent any bad habits from forming. So, the dormitories are out of the question. Megan interjected, saying, What kind of bad habits? You know, I could have matriculated at Carlisle House, which is all girls. Not exactly a den of iniquity, Mom. Aunt Stacia turned her head away from Megan and looked at Claire, saying, More like a nunnery. Claire, you should really let Megan have some fun. College is not only about studying and building a future, it's about... Grandma Blint had been observing the conversation and then broke in. The dormitories are very low rent, Megan. I wouldn't want you to spend any time in those. You can stay with me instead while you look for a suitable off-campus apartment. You'll be safe, I promise. Grandma Blint now exuded a pleasant calmness, which was the first time Megan had seen her grandmother like this since the day before the funeral. Claire became very bright and said, Yes, that solves your problem, Megan. You can help sort Grandpa's things and clean up around the old townhouse. We'll send everything that you have packed for school. Grandma needs someone right now, and we have to be back home soon. Megan shifted uneasily in her chair, but smiled compliantly at her mother. Megan had been to her grandma's house only a few times, and never overnight. The two-story townhome on the corner of its residential street was filled with books accumulated from Grandma Blint's years in Latin and Herbology studies. Megan could recall the musty smell from the leather-bound texts that permeated the second-floor pantry, overpowering everything else. Come up! I want to show you what's in the trunk! Grandma Blint called down the short ladder leading up into the attic of the townhome. Megan had just finished moving her suitcase into the spare bedroom down the hallway from Grandma's room, and had stepped out to face the collapsible wooden steps. I'll be up in a minute. I need to see your bathroom first. Megan headed toward the single lavatory, but passed it instead. The upstairs kitchen and its pantry was the final room at the end of the hallway and held Grandma Blint's small personal library. Megan opened the shuttered doors behind the kitchen table and observed the shelves of cookbooks and reference tomes. She stooped down to the lowest shelf and ran her finger over the titles of botany tracks about mistletoe, books on preparing animals, such as sheep, for supper, and an illustrated lunar calendar. Megan paused at a work that seemed particularly aged, with a golden sickle on the spine. The sickle appeared to have been inked with real gold metal. Are you coming up or not? I want to show you a few keepsakes before dinner. Megan rose up and replied, Be there in a minute. I have to wash my hands and then I'll be done. Megan started the climb up the steps, which required a firm grasp of the rails, holding the steps together. The ladder to the attic was very flimsy and would have difficulty supporting any significant weight. Grandpa had to crouch down every time he came up here to put something away. He couldn't even use the ladder except to pull himself up into the attic. He didn't come up here that much, as it was a chore to do so. 
Megan stuck her head through the opening in the attic floor and saw it had a low ceiling with a semicircular Diocletian window offering a view of the sidewalk outside the house. She finished her ascent and was able to stand upright next to Grandma Blint, who was engrossed in digging through an open storage chest. Here it is. I haven't opened this scrapbook in such a long time. Your mother rarely came to visit, you know. We would always have to travel when we wanted to see them, which wasn't that often. Grandma held a yellowed page from a journal in front of Megan for her to view. Your grandfather and I were voted homecoming king and queen at the Lyceum Academy our senior year. This is us in the chatterbox section of the Oakwood Observer. Your grandfather was so handsome when we were teenagers. Megan had never seen Grandma Blint as a girl, and was startled by how little she had changed over the years. Grandpa Blint had truly exhibited his age and would have been almost unrecognizable from the confident, vital man standing next to the youthful Abigail, holding the homecoming prize in the newspaper picture. The same issue announced my second-place win in the Classics League National Essay Writing Contest. My first year of Latin studies was entirely paid for by my prize money. I came right back to Lyceum Academy after university and instructed classes in Latin. My firstborn... Harvey, put my teaching career on hold for a while, as did his siblings. Megan took Grandma Blint's hand away from the page and began to flip through the entries in the scrapbook. Where is the article on the Classics League contest? What did you write about in Latin? My mother never clipped it. She thought that studying the classics was a waste of time. But I was encouraged by father. Most of my academic interests were due to his influence. I remember the write-up appearing several pages over from our homecoming photo, near the back of the same section. Perhaps you can put your investigative reporter cap on and find it for me. Grandma Blint glanced over at Megan and raised her eyebrows slightly, with a hopeful expression. Megan closed the scrapbook and passed it to Grandma Blint. Where would I find a decades-old news story? Is the Oakwood Observer even being published anymore? I would imagine it is not. Why, yes it is. But at weekly intervals, as it has been since the newspaper began printing. It shouldn't be too hard to find the archived copy at the library downtown, as there aren't that many editions to comb through. I haven't been there since I retired, but... The whole newspaper catalogue should be tucked away in a back room somewhere. I would be quite pleased to see it after all these years. Oh, and to answer your question, I wrote my essay on the Roman Legion. The Romans were victorious in battle because they were able to overcome their fear of death and fight as one, while their enemies couldn't summon the same fortitude or precision. Vincit Do you have any old photos of my mom? She was such a bookworm. I bet they're hilarious. Well, I have a few of her from high school. Claire was so awkward and shy that she didn't even feel comfortable being photographed. Her graduation yearbook is in one of these binders. What's this? Megan noticed an oak wood cane with a silver metal handle in the shape of a ram's head with horns. 
The cane was leaning against the paneling, along the wall behind the trap door to the floor below. Your grandfather had a slight limp the last few years. That cane belonged to my father, who brought it over from Wiltshire with us when we emigrated, right before my sophomore year of high school. After he passed away, I kept it as an heirloom of sorts. The summer night's waxing gibbous moon provided a soft light in Megan's bedroom as she lay half asleep. Her mind was occupied with the events of the past few days and what was to come. Tomorrow morning would bring some apartment hunting and then a trip to the library to uncover Grandma's lost scholastic prize write-up. This bed isn't stable, Megan murmured. A lumpy mattress and a rickety brass bed frame. Megan rolled over and stood at the foot of the bed, stepping over to the open window with a view of the street. She paused and scanned the outside, but saw nothing other than the next row of houses that continued after the intersection dividing the two blocks. I have to get some sleep. I don't want to use sleeping pills. Megan returned to bed with a loud squeak and began to drift off into slumber again. The house was entirely still. Then, somewhere down the hallway, Megan heard distant movement. The familiar creaking of the attic's wooden ladder buckling under a weight, and the sound of something heavy being lowered onto the floor from above. Then, she heard one leaden footstep, and then what sounded like a cane tapping the floor. Another step and the cane again hitting the hallway floor of the silent house. One after the other, and getting closer to the door of Megan's bedroom. Deliberate steps down the hall, past grandmother's room, past the bathroom, and then ending in front of Megan's bedroom door. The loosely fitted doorknob to the bedroom rattled violently, Whoever was trying to enter the room was intent on getting in, despite the lock. The vehement turning of the doorknob continued for a few more moments, and then stopped abruptly. A terror-stricken Megan continued to lie on her bed, fixated on the now quiescent bronze knob. Nothing further was heard from the other side of the bedroom door and Megan fell into sleep without even realizing it. I think someone was in the house last night. Megan took her chair at the kitchen table, while Grandma Blint placed breakfast before her. Someone? You mean a burglar? Grandma Blint didn't take her seat, and looked right at Megan. Yeah, how could you sleep through all that noise? I always sleep very soundly. I grow my own plants for special herbal teas. I have a nice cup of medicated tea before bedtime, and it relaxes me. I could sleep through anything. But what happened? Did you notice if anything was taken this morning? Nothing seems missing, but I haven't been downstairs yet. I think there was someone outside my room, but it was very late, and I might have been dreaming. I would close the windows tonight just in case, even though we are on the second floor. 
Grandma Blint sat across from Megan with a worried demeanor. I think it was just a dream, dear. But I will latch the windows this evening before we retire. We may get a chill as the harvest season is approaching, so I will close the upstairs windows, irrespective of nighttime intruders. Grandma Blint produced a faint smile, and Megan munched on her buttered toast, pausing to speak. You mean the fall equinox? I remember that from high school astronomy class. There is a fall equinox in September, and a spring equinox in March. The equinoxes and the phases of the moon are part of the lunar calendar. You are correct, my girl. The harvest moon is the full moon that is closest to the autumnal equinox. It is blood red in color. Et luna in sanguinem. Megan wiped her lips with a napkin and left it on her plate. I have to go and do some apartment hunting. I'll be back by dinner. Have to run or I won't get anything done today. Will you find my new story? Swing by the library if you get a chance. Sure, Grandma Abigail. I'll be back soon. Megan's curiosity had gotten the better of her, and she decided to take the bus to the library first, instead of browsing through the listings for a studio apartment. Her scholastic course load wouldn't begin for a few weeks, and Megan assured herself that there was plenty of time to find somewhere to live. Exploring the library was too much of a temptation to resist. A long set of stairs with metal handrails led up to the public library's edifice. The red-brown brick building was rectangular in shape and had a spacious reception desk at which a young woman was engaged in some paperwork. The worn maple wooden floors echoed Megan's footsteps as she entered the library and made her way to the librarian on duty. Hello, I would like to read some back issues of the Oakwood Observer. Are they in the stacks, or do I have to request them? The librarian put down her pencil and answered Megan. They are on microfiche, if it is older issues that you need. What year are we talking about? What is microfiche? The librarian continued to lean on the reception desk as she spoke. Her black hair was tied into a tight bun behind her head, projecting an overall appearance of neatness and efficiency. I hadn't heard of microfiche either until I started working at the library. The microfiche machine barely gets touched as patrons don't research the Oakwood Observer's archives. Romance novels and magazines are generally what people borrow. The library stopped adding new additions to microfiche almost 20 years ago. The last two decades of editions are stored digitally on CDs that you can check out but not remove from the library. No, the news articles I'm looking for go back many years. I require the entire back catalog if I can get it. That shouldn't be a problem. If you've never seen microfiche before, it is stored in small plastic canisters. The images are compressed on something similar to a roll of film negatives. I'll show you. Please wait while I locate the box for the observer. The librarian seated Megan on the chair in front of a battered micron microfiche reader. The gray metal and plastic device occupied a single table among the book stacks at the back of the library. The librarian opened the first microfiche container and mounted the roll in the machine's spools. This is how you can view each edition, she said, turning the plastic control piece to move from each image to the next. Some pages might be smudged or upside down, but use the knob below the frame to adjust the focus or rotate the image. 
Each canister in the box is labeled by year. These Observer newspapers are fragments from the town's history that are seldom discussed. You are a rare bird indeed. But I will leave you to your work. Just let me know if you need anything else. Thanks, I'll do that. Megan found the container dated with the year of the homecoming article that Grandma Blint had shown her in the attic and fed its roll through the spools. The viewing frame was lit up with black and white photos, and Megan zoomed through the front pages until she found the issue's chatterbox section. At the back of the section was a small article with a write-up on the Classics League and Grandma Blint's rudder-up status. Megan took a snapshot with the microfiche reader screen's copy feature and printed the page to the copier closest to the reception desk. The librarian saw Megan advancing on the copier and spoke to her. Did you find anything exciting? Megan took the copied page from the tray and replied, No, it's pretty mundane. A family member wanted something from the good old days. Nothing spectacular. The librarian continued to speak to Megan. There are some stories back far enough that makes one wonder about the town. I read through the very old issues of The Observer, and you might be surprised at some of the things in there. Really? I have some time. I guess I could do some further reading into the observers and alls. Be my guest. We don't close for hours, so you can soak up some of the town lore. Megan returned to the microfiche reader and read past the end of the school year issue into the subsequent months. The September issue had a story on a roof collapse at the Lyceum Academy, killing the Latin teacher and the assistant principal. The school blamed the tragedy on poor construction. Megan began reading the next year's news when she noticed the librarian standing behind her. Sorry to interrupt. It's just that you might be the only other person who has read these newspaper articles recently. The library is often almost empty, so I come back here and read the Observer's bygone issues. I see you found the story about the Lyceum Academy. That is where the pattern begins. What pattern? A tragedy like that repeated itself? More than repeated itself. There were two deaths, two disappearances, or a death and a disappearance in Oakwood every eight years after the Lyceum Academy classroom roof caved in. Always in the month of September. It is the strangest thing I have ever seen. Let me show you something. The librarian opened another microfiche container and added it to the viewer's spools. She quickly turned the knob and arrived at a bold headline above a picture of two elderly women. In September, there was a house fire that claimed two sisters who lived together. The police and the insurance company found that it was due to faulty wiring. After that, there was a car crash that killed a young married couple. Two children vanished in the park at the edge of town and there were several times in which two unrelated strangers went missing or died in September, but otherwise had no connection to each other. I can show you the rest of the articles if you want to read more. No, that is fine. I believe you. But a few deaths every eight years aren't really a pattern. I would chalk that up to coincidence. People die all the time, even in accidents. But... It would make a good horror story. 
Megan presented Grandma Blint with the photocopy of the Oakwood Observer page that evening, and Grandma put the paper into her scrapbook. All the windows were shut in the townhouse as Megan prepared for bed. I need some air. I'll open the window for a while and then get some rest, Megan thought. I hope I don't pass out before I remember to close it. Megan undid the latch and pushed the lower half of the window up and then locked the latch at the top. The full moon shone down on Megan as she paused to inhale from the nighttime atmosphere. She crawled into bed and then heard the attic ladder lower itself outside her room. The house was quiet, as it had been the previous evening, and Grandma Blint had closed the door to her bedroom over an hour ago. Megan hoped that Grandma had somehow made it out of her room, without a sound, and was now coming back from the attic. Heavy steps, accompanied by the sound of a cane striking the hallway floor, made themselves known to Megan. The mystery visitor from the night before had returned. The cadence of footsteps and a walking cane continued, and then ended at the threshold of her bedroom door. An unseen presence gripped the doorknob and shook it with great strength. Megan was sure this was not a nightmare this time around. As before, the doorknob was twisted from the outside for several more moments, and then became noiseless, as if it had never been disturbed. Megan's first impulse was to throw open the door and confront her stalker. She was so seized with fear that she was no longer afraid, and instead had become emboldened. Megan opened the lock to the door and stepped out into the hallway. Grandma Blint was facing her, holding a cup of tea in a saucer. Let's go to the kitchen, my dear. I'll explain everything. Megan was wide-eyed and breathing hard, but followed her grandmother to the table. Here, drink this. You'll feel better. Megan was speechless, but did as she was told. The tea was warm and possessed a bitter but sweet taste, soothing Megan's throat as it went down. Did you see him? Where did he go? Megan asked. Grandpa? Well, he's around here somewhere. I'm not exactly sure where. Grandpa Blint? Grandma Abigail, please, you're scaring me. Megan sat down at the kitchen table and drank the rest of her tea. Your grandfather's spirit can remain on this plane as long as the second sacrifice hasn't been completed. Once the second death is completed, you will both be sent to oblivion. The horned god will be satiated then. Megan felt languid, and then a numbing sensation began to spread from her legs into the remainder of her body. Grandma Blint's relaxed tone changed, and her voice became malevolent. She leaned into Megan and said, Grandpa wasn't trying to get into your room to harm you, Megan. He was trying to enter your room to warn you. You've poisoned me. Yes. I will dispose of your body and say that you left to start your classes. When you fail to show up, 
you will be listed as a missing person. Non corpus delecti. I'm so much older now that I can't get around the way I used to. I have to find other ways to complete the cycle with those closer to me. Megan slowly slid down the kitchen chair onto the floor, feeling almost completely numb and unable to remain seated. As she was beginning to lose all feeling and vision, Megan could sense a rope being placed around her neck by which she was dragged toward the bathroom. Grandma Blint was surprisingly spry, with a powerful, pulling vigor. When Julius Caesar and his armies first encountered the native Celts on what is now the British Isles, he wrote that these men believed that their gods delighted in the slaughter of prisoners and criminals. But when these captives were in short supply, they sacrificed even the innocent. I'm going to cut your throat in the bathtub, my dear. It will be quick. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So typical for the superstitions of the past to be harmful for the youth of today. But sometimes your elders may be willing to go very far to get their way. So, young people, be aware that the change can be the most frightening thing of all for the elderly. It certainly does not seem to be the local bloodthirsty demon. After an important word about how to keep this show and other exciting things coming from our little group of miscreants free of charge, we venture into the frightening world of the Novbrock prison camp, where life is but an experiment waiting to be dissected and catalogued. Or will it be the undoing of the world? This week on the Simply Scary Podcast, Episode 5, Comfort Food. Cynthia quit, so you'll have to take over. He eyed me as he walked up to the counter. I got it, sir, I nervously said. 
He limped back to the kitchen and I started helping customers. Just as the leader brought the butt of his gun down on the head of the waitress's fat friend, who attempted a clumsy run for the kitchen, an exclamation mark of blood sparked from his skull and he collapsed, moaning into a crumpled heap on the vinyl tiled floor. Come one, come all to our matinee of madness, the Simply Scary Podcast. Hello there, listeners of the Simply Scary Podcast. My name is Ashley Arndt, and you can join myself and the rest of the Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's Evil Idol contestants for the final round of Evil Idol, where you decide who the winner will be. Be there Monday, October 31st at 9 p.m. Central Standard Time, and listen as we perform live some of the most frightening tales we can dig up and take part in choosing who will win the coveted grand prize package. I will see you there so you can help us Turn off the lights and turn on the dark. It seems that Nullbrook Prison Camp is more than a military medical research facility overseen by a brutal totalitarian regime. But it could be the key to turning the tide of a greater conflict in their favor. They perform fearsome experiments which attempt to tap into a long, hidden, darker side of a human being's baser instincts. When Subject 4372 arrives, they may learn what that really means. Our executive producer, and as we like to call him our resident zombie sociopath, Jesse Cornett's many personalities perform our final tale returned to the dust. Warden Bronco ran her index finger down a column of the ledger's book's open page and then inscribed a figure at the bottom with her lacquer fountain pen. There were columns for a subject's name, inmate number, gender, age, place of origin, degree of health, assigned unit at the facility, testing series, and status, alive or deceased. Bronco had tallied the number of the subjects that remained viable upon completion of the previous day's testing regime and had entered this number in the final row below the farthest right column of the subject journal. Another shipment of prisoners was to arrive the next morning by train and be processed by Dr. Lachinko's medical staff in preparation for a new battery of tests. Bronco turned to a fresh page in the journal and noted at its header the date of the next delivery. The light from the desk lamp dimmed as the orange glow from its bulb's dual filament faded out. The bulb cooled in its metal half-spherical hood as Bronco put the ledger in the top drawer locking it with a small key. The windowless back office of the facility's main experimentation building was now lit, except for a shaft of light from the hallway guiding the camp's warden to the nearly closed door. The office's door bolt clicked behind her, 
and she strode down the corridor to the exit reserved for senior administrators. The night sky above the campgrounds was starry and unobscured, owing to the remote rural region in which the prison camp had been raised. The rectangular camp ran along train tracks that had been constructed a few hundred yards outside its barbed wire fence's periphery, but there was otherwise no settlement or contact with the outside for perhaps a hundred miles in any direction. The vast towering mountain range at the foot of which the camp had been built loomed large in the backdrop as Bronco walked past two armed guards and up the steps to her bunkhouse, retiring for the evening. Luchinko was hiding something about the only survivor of the latest round of psychotropic surgical probes, she thought. No one could withstand that kind of pressure in their brain and live. Or Luchinko had chosen to spare the girl from the full application for some reason yet unknown. Bronco had seen the film footage of subject number 4372 after she had been unstrapped from the procedure chair. The girl was shaken, but she was fully conscious. The other subjects were lifeless in their seats. Their eyeballs imploded after just one charged syringe injection through their pupils and into their retinas. The trial footage showed the girl staring into the camera as her cloth gag was removed by the examiner, her expression one of complete enmity and malice. Camp Commander Volk was almost a head taller than even his tallest guard at the Science City Novbrock prison camp. He stood at the center of the processing platform, while the billowy smoke from the passing train wafted overhead. Dr. Luchinko's assistant, Dr. Zurova, waited next to him, holding an arch ring clipboard, her dull white lab coat flapping in the chill wind of the early day. The number of prisoners brought to the camp had become sparser with each new train arrival, as the fighting on the Western Front had worsened, and communication with the capital had become more infrequent. Shipments continued, however, with Central Command hoping that a major breakthrough from Dr. Luchinko's research efforts was imminent. Warden Bronco approached the pair on the platform as the blue streamlined train came to a stop, and the attending guards opened the metallic boxcar adjacent to the back of the locomotive. A prominent red star was mounted above the locomotive's pilot, a symbol of the train's military function and affiliation. How many in this one? There are four sections of bunks to be filled after the rounds from the last two months. Dr. Pochivalov will receive a quarter of the new subjects at Unit 3 once they are processed. The remainder will go to Unit 5 for Dr. Luchinko. Dr. Zurova stepped forward and extended her clipboard with one hand, showing Bronco the list of persons being transported. We require this entire group of new subjects. The attrition rate for Unit 5 is the highest among the units, and our work is priority. Dr. Podshivalov must wait. Dr. Zurova smirked, the corners around her full lips curling up. Zurova enjoyed being insubordinate to Warden Bronco and made full use of her status as Luchinko's deputy investigator to exasperate the woman. Bronco looked into Zurova's face and said nothing. The young doctor's almond-shaped eyes and straight black hair marked her as native to the camp's region, while all of the camp administrators and most of the guards were outsiders from the West. Dr. Luchinko had been the primary medical researcher at the Science City, vicinal to the capital, 
and was assigned to Novbrok for this reason. Luchinko was only a civilian, but his influence was greater than either Warden Bronco or Commander Volk with Central Command. I'll speak with Dr. Potshivalov then. Bronco's forehead tightened under the meticulously braided bun of blonde hair behind her head in an attempt to hide her consternation. He may not need another batch until next month. Commander Volk had been ignoring the scene, but now turned to look at both of them. We may have to keep this group in quarantine for a week and observe them. What is being sent from the capital is deteriorating in quality and these prisoners may be malnourished or diseased. Unhealthy subjects would be of no use to either Potshivalov or Luchinko. Volk's bearing and vitality cut a sharp contrast to the wretches stumbling out of the train compartment and being chained together by the guards. He showed no emotion from underneath the officer's hat visor as the train boxcar's passengers filed past the platform in a single line. The ragged cluster of men, women, and children were political prisoners, and their family members, dissidents who were exiled to the Far East as a punishment for transgressions against the state and the people. No one expected them to return. The pineal gland is here. Deep in the center of the human brain. The pineal is an organ that is only the size of a pea, but may hold tremendous untapped power. Power that could turn the tide of the war if properly harnessed. The chart of the sectioned brain was displayed on a full-color sheet, hanging above Luchinko's cluttered desk from a cord. The sheet was suspended from the retractable arm of the slide projector that had been placed squarely over a pile of the doctor's paperwork. Dr. Luchinko continued to use his lecturer's pointer to emphasize his discussion with Warden Bronco. But what success so far? I've read your weekly reports since these experiments commenced, and we have nothing but casualties. No subject has survived past the third trial, which is highly invasive, except for that girl you observed the previous week. Subject 4372? Bronco sat with one leg over the other in her high back chair in front of the doctor's desk, waiting for Luchinko's response. The desirability of the germ warfare and hypothermia trials on the camped subjects made practical sense to her and could save many citizens' lives. But this? Dissecting brains? Digging around for some dormant biological relic from humanity's prehistory? was akin to reading the entrails of a goat for portents. Only the strength of Luchinko's reputation kept her from dismissing him entirely. Yes, Subject 4372. That is why I wanted to have this meeting with you. To convince you of our progress in the trials. She lived, whereas all the others have perished after the stimulant was applied. I would like to move to the fourth trial with her after further monitoring in isolation. We may possess in her that which I have been searching for this entire time. What does the wired syringe do to the subjects in the third trial? I must admit I don't understand all the technical details of your reports. I've watched the films of each trial in my office. You have them bound in place in their seats and gagged. 
the subjects convulse after the injection, but then slump in their seats. What is it that kills them? An electroshock to the brains, meant to stimulate the subjects' torpid pineal glands. The jolt is passed through the retina into the brain cerebral cortex, which is the seat of our consciousness. The pineal gland is buried beneath the cerebral cortex, which is its gateway. Those born with the capacity to manipulate the pineal psychic reserves will have their gland awakened and then be primed for the conditioning necessary to make use of its power. Bronco leaned back in her chair slightly and looked Dr. Luchinko over as he stood in front of his desk, grasping his pointer with both hands. He was quite an unassuming man with slightly stooped shoulders, bushy eyebrows behind round tortoiseshell spectacles, and short, grubby fingers. But when the doctor spoke of a matter that was of importance to him, he became a giant both in presence and in manners. Bronco could tell that Luchinko truly believed that he was on the verge of uncovering something that had been a lifelong mystery to him, something secret that had been lost for untold generations. Bronco shifted in her seat again, adjusting the stiff woolen material of her uniform skirt. This lecture was beginning to eat into her other duties, but she was willing to continue to listen. Is all this just a theory? When did you begin to investigate the pineal and its supposed potential? Supposed? I am a man of science, my little fox, and have demonstrable evidence to inform my theory. Bronco would tolerate such language only from Dr. Luchinko and no one else, and only in private, as the two of them were now. When I was the principal investigator at Science City Obnisk, we used cadavers in our research, but never live human subjects as we do at the camp. The necessities of wartime have changed everything. But there was one instance in which an exception was made for us. The police had brought us an old woman who was a local fortune teller. She had been accused of murdering her adult daughter. The corpse was littered with stab wounds from multiple kitchen knives. It was almost unbelievable that this frail elderly woman could have held down her grown daughter, who was in her physical prime, and stabbed her over and over with every knife in the household kitchen. No one else was suspected, and the preponderance of the indicia seemed to affirm the old woman's guilt. The old woman was sent to the Science City Labs because of something that had happened while she was at the Metropolitan Police Station. The police chief had committed her to a solitary holding cell as they prepared the interrogation room for the woman's questioning. The woman was placed under watch with one officer outside the cell to keep her from possibly harming herself. Several of the officers were down the hall in the interrogation room when they heard a gurgling sound followed by a thump as a body hit the floor. They ran out of the room to the woman's holding cell from which the sound had been heard, and the old woman's sentry was there, gasping on the floor outside the cell, clutching his throat. This almost toothless old woman was standing still over the young man from behind her cell's bars, with a face that the officers described as being from hell. The officers threw open the cell door after unlocking it and shook the old woman violently until she released the young officer. He told the others what had happened. 
and they decided to bring the peasant woman to our lab. The police chief was a friend of one of our research scientists and knew that we conducted physiological studies at the Science City. We retained the old woman in a closed room with a bed, but she passed away in her sleep without warning during the third night of her stay at the labs. We had only been able to take some x-rays and blood tests before she expired. However, the autopsy revealed something very abnormal concerning the woman's brain. Warden Bronco had become quite intent as the doctor's story developed, but now interrupted him to ask a question. What about the old woman's remaining family? Didn't they want to claim the body of the deceased despite what she may have done to her daughter? There was no other family. The woman and her daughter had recently moved from a tiny village near Lake Vodasok, where they had lived all their lives until relocating to the capital. The old woman was telling fortunes on the street up until the time of her arrest. But this is what we found after removing the old woman's brain. Even though her brain matter had atrophied significantly with age, her brain's pineal gland was massively swollen. And not only that, the pineal had grown from the base behind the cerebral cortex and seemed to actually have a path toward the frontal lobe, as if it could extend and then retract itself at will. So, she was some kind of freak. Who knows what happens in those rustic areas near Lake Vodostok? Bronco shrugged her shoulders a bit and then sat upright again. Not a freak, the doctor replied, but more of a throwback to our pre-civilized ancestors, those who could use the force of their minds to execute their will on the physical world. The pineal gland was our species' third eye, a window into sources of now unimaginable cosmic energies that has since become dormant and enervated. But the vessel of this power remains, albeit in a degenerative state. Now, think of what someone healthy and youthful with this kind of ability might be able to accomplish if a feeble hag near death could hurl blades at someone and choke a grown man with but a thought. What might someone in the nation stages of her pineal's development achieve? Subject 4372? Yes, Subject 4372. I want to move to the fourth trial with her. And what constitutes a fourth trial? A craniotomy. We will make an incision in the girl's skull, stimulate the pineal gland directly, and document the results. Her fully active pineal gland might be trained as part of Central Command's Special Weapons Program. Our X-ray work after the third trial suggests that Subject 4372 may have a particularly enlarged pineal when considering the total size of her brain. Central Command has research and evidence regarding these kinds of subjects that they have as of yet held back from all of us, even myself. Our work here has encouraged them, as we may feel in the gaps in their own studies. Do as you would, Dr. Lochenko. Let's just hope 
our diminutive patient survives this ordeal and becomes of use to the state. Warden Bronco left the sanguine doctor in his office and returned to her own to finish the day's administrative chores. Before taking her seat at a nearly empty desk, Bronco was almost obsessively neat when juxtaposed against Dr. Lachinko's gestalt filing technique. Bronco took a subject file from one of the cabinets along the office wall. She sat at her desk and opened Subject 4372's crisp manila inmate folder. The girl's photograph was fastened with a paperclip in the folder's top right corner. Ala Morozova was 14 years old and was from a formerly autonomous region that had been absorbed by the state during the war. She and her parents had been at another camp where her parents had expired. Ala had then been transferred to Science City, Novbrook after unusual behavior was documented by the investigators following her parents' deaths. Alla had been assigned to Dr. Luchinko's Unit 5 for this reason. Bronco put her hand over the photograph. The girl's atramentous eyes peered out at her. Alla was very typical of her home region's inhabitants, with wavy black hair and defined aquiline features. But she had an almost timeless quality that kept Bronco transfixed for an instant before closing the file and placing it inside her desk drawer. The operating room's high ceiling lights were very harsh and Dr. Luchinko perspired lightly under his gray surgical cap. He looked out over the circular operating room at the other members of the team. Dr. Zurova faced him at the other end of the operating table and two medical assistants were prepping various implements and surgical tools on a nearby cart. All four members of the medical team wore light gray surgical scrubs and were protected from head to toe against exposure to the patient during the procedure. The seats of the camp's hospital amphitheater were occupied by medical staff from the other research units, camp officers, and Warden Bronco. Bronco looked down at Luchinko from her spot along one of the upper tiers of the amphitheater and watched as Subject 4372 was taken from a hospital gurney by two orderlies and placed on the operating table. Commander Volk sat close by, with two armed guards sporting submachine guns strapped to their backs on either side of the exit door. Subject 4372's head was shaven, and she wore only a simple gray hospital gown. The girl was apparently unconscious as her neck brace was attached, as she did not move or show any other signs of awareness. The pre-surgery anesthetic must have already been administered shortly before the scheduled procedure. Luchinko and Zurova had discussed using an awake brain surgery method on Subject 4372, but Luchinko believed that the pineal would be the most receptive to stimulation while conscious brain functions in the cerebral cortex were passive. According to the executive briefing on the fourth trial, the same wired syringe with an electrical charge from the third trial would be injected into the area surrounding the pineal gland, but this time through a hole made directly in the subject's skull. An exceedingly thin needle would be used to prod the slumbering pineal and provoke a reaction. The potential psychic response would then be measured by the electromagnetic field reader machines being wheeled into the operating room and positioned around the subject by more orderlies, which were followed by an electroencephalograph on a cart with its own monitor. 
The machines hummed faintly in the background as Dr. Luchinko addressed the amphitheater's assembled audience. What you will witness today, I attest, is palpable evidence of an extrasensory reality beyond that which can be perceived with the five senses. Our subject is a germinating reservoir of an incredible, unrealized power that could change both the course of our conflict with the Alliance as well as the course of human history. Knowledge that may have been taken for granted by our remote antecedents will be brought back to present and harnessed with modern science. Dr. Lachinko gestured with one hand behind him while facing the observers, sheltered behind the glass shields surrounding the operating room's enclosure. These electromagnetic registers will record all field disturbances created by our subject once the pineal gland is stimulated. The subject withstood this application from the third trial, whereas no other subject from among over a dozen test groups had been able to do so. The stimulant used in this fourth trial will be of a greater intensity and also of a greater proximity to the gland. Let us now begin and move humanity out of the dark ages. One of the assistants fitted Dr. Luchinko's spectacles with a loop that covered both lenses and adjusted the device for comfort above his surgical mask. Subject 4372's face and lower scalp had been fitted with electrodes to measure her brain impulses during the surgery. The assistant handed him the first scalpel, and he proceeded to make a cut along the markings at the top of the subject's skull. Luchinko constructed a skin and bone flap in the bare skull and then hovered the wired syringe over the opening that had been made. The extremely thin but stiff needle entered the opening that showed an exposed brain, and Lachinko slowly pushed the plunger into the syringe's cylindrical tube. Subject 4372's eyelids fluttered briefly, but then she became still once again. The electromagnetic field readers continued to hum, but their black and white cathode displays showed no new activity in the room's atmosphere. The nearby electroencephalograph read the subject's brainwaves along its axis points, which were indicative of someone in a dreamless state. Warden Bronco watched the operating room as Dr. Zorova paced around the operating table, taking notes, while Dr. Luchinko looked down at the subject without a word. Durov, please continue to monitor the subject's breathing and pulse. There seems to be no reaction to the application at all. Something must be wrong. Warden Bronco pulled at her uniform's collar due to a growing discomfort. The temperature in the amphitheater was rising perceptively, even though the building itself had been cool in the early winter afternoon. She looked around and could see that the others among the rows were also feeling the room's climate change as they removed their hats and wiped their brows. The wave on the electroencephalograph's monitor had been steadily showing a decline and then completely flatlined. Dr. Lochenko, the subject has stopped breathing. I can detect no pulse at all. Durov looked over at Dr. Lochenko with a worried pause. Lochenko let out a deep sigh. Zorova, Durov, 
We are going to make an emergency attempt to revive her. If that fails, we need to at least recover as much of her brain as we can. As Luchinko turned away from the operating table, the air in the room crackled, and the electromagnetic field readers' displays surged with activity. The readers were now humming loudly, with waves cresting and falling rapidly in wild, oscillating patterns. The glass shields partitioning the amphitheater seats from the medical team shattered abruptly and burst inward, showering the doctors with debris. Bronco stood up from her seat and saw an ethereal form extend itself from Subject 4372's inert body on the operating table. The form began to take the shape of multiple stalks and washed over the stunned medical staff and the amphitheater's observers, into which they disappeared without a trace. A shimmering arm was approaching Bronco as she hastened outside from the nearby exit and ran through the snowy campgrounds. Bronco turned around as lustrous golden appendages blanketed the campgrounds and engulfed terrified guards and the other camp personnel. Guards along the camp wall's walkways and sentry huts screamed and were silenced as if they had been torn out of the fabric of space itself. An undulating mass of pure energy was forming a canopy over the camp, but had yet to reach the front gates. Bronco continued to run as the gates to the camp were now in sight. The snow-laden mountains past the railroad tracks might provide a refuge for her until the next train arrived. Bronco turned again to see if there was anyone else making an escape as an iridescent blob that had begun to take the shape of an outreaching hand descended on her. Warden Bronco cried out one last time. Everyone is gone. The camp has been abandoned. The battle-scarred commander stood behind one of the battalion's canvas-hooded trucks parked at the camp gates and spoke into his handheld transceiver. Send a telegraph from the train station to Central Command and let him know that Science City Novbrook is deserted. Commander Mission watched from outside the open gates as his men scoured the camp environs with leashed dogs, a light snow falling on them, hoping to find some sign of occupation. Mission had been called in from the capital despite the approach of Alliance forces when no telegraph or radio transmittal had been received from Novbrock for several days. Commander Mission, there is something in the hospital amphitheater. Please take a look at this. One of the field reconnaissance soldiers rushed toward Commander Mission with an oddly excited expression on his face and stopped in front of him. What is this? Did you find someone alive? No, but this is even stranger than all the piles of dust dotting the floors in the camp buildings. Lieutenant Toropov found it after we tried to use the radio set in the warden's bunk. Mission followed the battalion scout through the campgrounds and into the camp hospital. All the electrical equipment and light fixtures in the camp had been burned out, but it was still daylight, providing some measure of visibility within the camp amphitheater. Here! Among the shards of glass strewn over the operating room's floor was a table covered in gray surgical drapes, but otherwise unoccupied. It's the burial shroud of a young girl. You can see the outline of her body over the length of the cloth. Her eyes, nose, ears, hair, all of it. 
The image is burned into the operating table's metal surface, too. Commander Mission grabbed the cloth covering with both hands and held it up in front of him to view thick dust falling off the cloth and onto the operating table and floor. A perfect replica of a girl's face gazed back at him, her eyes wide in amazement. Prison camp. I think we can safely put that one in the failure file. I bet many a dictator wishes they could repeat those results. After all, what invading country would not like entities like that around on their side? Though it seems that the world would truly benefit from a verifiable occurrence of the results Nolbrock fell prey to. But now, Time for a final message before we make some exciting announcements. So don't go away. We still have much more to scare you with. Well, hello boys and girls, it's me again, the other half. Uh, of the producer, that is. It. Anywho, I hope you're enjoying this Halloween episode of the Simply Scary Podcast. Be sure to tune in tomorrow night for another episode of the Simply Scary Podcast, Episode 5, Comfort Food. Mm-hmm, good eating, just like Mom used to make. I also want to drive you to our patrons area. If you go to simplyscarypodcast.com, at the top of the page, you'll see Patrons. Click on that, and it'll take you where you can sign up to become a patron of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and that will ensure that we continue to offer you the top-notch productions you've come to expect. Again, you're not going to get this kind of entertainment on cable. Well, you might, but you'll pay a huge chunk for it. So, go to the Patrons area today and become a member. Plus, you'll get extras and bonuses that you will get nowhere else. Back to you, GM. All right. Who's going to help me break in my new bat? Welcome back, listeners. This is the part of the show for important information at what's in the future for the Simply Scary Podcast and our affiliates. First, for this episode's randomly selected iTunes review and winner of our free membership at the Chilling Tales for Dark Night site, we have this message from... Drumroll, please. Coming up, Chief. Travis D. Travis D. writes, What a fantastic first episode. Both stories were narrated on a very high level, not to mention that both stories were amazing. Keep up the good work. This is definitely a podcast to invest your time in if you love horror. 
That was a very encouraging comment, Travis D. You'll need to email us a screenshot of your iTunes account page with your screen name pictured to verify it is your account and send it to contact at simplyscarypodcast.com to claim your prize. Keep those five-star ratings coming and share away. We also want to remind you about something special happening tonight, All Hallows' Eve. Our friends from Chilling Tales for Dark Night are having the final round of the first-ever horror talent competition, Evil Idol. You can help them choose the winner and enjoy live performances from the top competitors. Find out who receives the grand prize package and who will be the next gut-wrenching performance artist for their incredible audio productions. Plus, enjoy devilishly delicious live readings from all the artists left chomping at the bit for the top spot. Join them there at youtube.com forward slash WI at 9pm Central Time tonight to vote up or eliminate the final contestants. Like victims in the famous Colosseum of Ancient Rome, thumbs up or thumbs down decides their fate. For the generous listeners that would like to support us directly with our audio productions for as little as $2 a month in exchange for high-quality MP3s of all the Chilling Tales audio productions, isolated music tracks, short films available for online viewing, and other never-before-released digital bonuses, visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com forward slash patrons to sign up for a membership. If you are a horror author and enjoyed our adaptation of James Derman's work and would like a similar treatment for your own stories, don't hesitate to visit our contact page on simplyscarypodcast.com or reach out to us at contact at chillingtalesfordarknights.com. We can provide you with a great opportunity to terrify new audiences and enjoy a free consultation to help us find the best way to promote your work to our audience of rabid fans. If you think your story is creepy enough for the podcast, visit simplyscarypodcast.com forward slash submit a story forward slash and we'll see if your story has what it takes to make our blood and yours run cold. And if you are interested in sponsorship opportunities for your business or event during our show, click on the advertise link at the top of the page on simplyscarypodcast.com. Finally, to experience the rest of James Derman's stories, visit jamesderman.com to purchase a copy of Doorways to the Unseen. That's James, D-E-R-M-O-N-D dot com. It contains three more high-quality stories we know will chill you to your very core. Thank you for joining us for our broadcast. I am your host, G.M. Danielson. And remember, listeners, the things through doorways to the unseen have already seen you during those times you were alone. But... If it soothed your conscience any, 
feel free to think that it was just the wind. We will see you next time when we show you there's nothing simple about being scared. Unless, of course, it is the Simply Scary Podcast. This is executive producer Jesse Cornett. If you like what you hear, be sure to check out more from these authors at simplyscarypodcast.com. There you can find all information regarding the show and the stories appearing here in our podcast. The Simply Scary Podcast is a production of Chilling Entertainment. The showcase is written by Jesse Cornett and Dustin Kosky and produced by Jesse Cornett. The host of the Simply Scary Podcast is GM Danielson. Original music during the show by Jesse Cornett. This broadcast was directed and created by Craig Groshek. Be sure to look for the Simply Scary Podcast on iTunes. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star review. Comments or questions? Email us at contact at simplyscarypodcast.com and check our website for more information. While you're there, consider clicking on the patrons link at the top of the page to help support our show. Copyright Chilling Entertainment, LLC, 2016. Thanks for listening. Every closed door lies the unknown. But behind these doors lies the unseen. Your curiosity begs, but will you dare to open them? From author James Dermond comes an anthology of six stories which touch worlds beyond your daily reality. Doorways to the unseen. Pass through these doors and experience places that seem real, but present visions of unimaginable horror. A summer escape becomes an inescapable nightmare of death. An attic containing a dark family secret and a warning for the living. An internment camp where the tormentors become the tormented. A small town engulfed in an unnameable madness, a mundane setting turned inside out, and a remote mountain monastery which shelters a frightening ancient presence. Doorways to the Unseen. Available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Find out more at jamesdermond.com. Doorways to the Unseen. Step inside the hidden where the unknown and the unimaginable meet. Doorways to the Unseen. Available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. 
Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.